and welcome to Access to Justice. I'm your host, Evan Clark. My co-host, usual co-host, Heather Mallory, can't be with us today. Unfortunately, she was a victim of a hit and run today. So our heart goes out to her and um, she said everything's fine, but, uh, you know, we want to give her some time to recover from that. So Heather, we're with you. Um, and we are joined today by a very special guest, Kim McDonald of McDonald Advisory. Kim is a financial advisor and insurance advisor with Raymond James Limited. Kim, how are you doing today? Hello, Evan. Well, I think I'm doing better than Heather with her headache and her um, probably a whole pile of paperwork now, which is unfortunate. Um, yeah, that's uh, a bit of bad luck. And uh, I, I don't think anybody likes to be involved in a car accident, whether it's a hit and run or, or any other form of it. It's just a big, a big pain in the butt. Yeah. You know, my wife was rear-ended a couple of weeks ago mm. and uh, like, I don't, it wasn't like a high speed thing or anything like that, but you know, she's got neck pain, headaches and stuff. So I called up my buddy, August Locke, who's a personal injury lawyer. And I said, all right, how do we maximize this opportunity? <laughs> <laughs> Is that how lawyers do it? They're just like, let's litigate. <laughs> well, no, it's not about litigation because oh. it's not likely to litigate it. Um, we wouldn't do it anyways. The insurance companies jumps in our shoes to litigate if they need to litigate um, if the other person's not insured. So um, no, the, we, we, but insurance companies, in you know, as you know, Kim, want to pay the least amount that they're obligated to pay, and so they've got their little tricks up their sleeves yes. to keep those costs down. And we want the opposite. We pay good money for that insurance, and we want to. Um, we want to be made whole. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, we don't want to scam anybody, but you know. We want to be made whole is the right way to say it. Mm -hmm. So she's in, you know, physical therapy and, and stuff. And, and, um, hopefully she feels better soon, but. Oh gosh. I hope they all feel better soon. I guess it's the season of car accidents. And the season of taxes and the season of mortgages. <laughs> oh, good segue. Like I was going to say top, top marks for that segue. I can't, I can't waste that. I wanted to say something else, but we've got to, we've got to use it. So we have with us today, Jill and she is a, Jill Mollering. Is that how you say your last name? Sorry, Jill. Yep. Should have checked that before we started recording. Jill Mollering. Thanks. You can say my name however you want, really. Right. As long as we don't call you late for dinner. That's the old saying. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So Jill is a fully licensed mortgage broker with mortgage architects serving Albertans for over 17 years. She was born and raised on an acreage just outside of St. Albert and spent years working in a variety of financial related positions, both in Alberta and abroad before stepping out as a mortgage broker. Her passion is helping people navigate the multitude of options when it comes to their mortgage and helping them feel completely confident with the product they choose. She loves answering questions, comparing rates and payment plans, and finding the best ways for clients to achieve their financial goals. And Jill has told us beforehand that she can talk for a long time about anything. Yeah, so I mean, welcome to the podcast, guys. Like, buckle up, sit down, get on a long car ride. We're going to talk about um, the, you know, the most engaging and exciting topics under the sun, right? Which is, uh, uh, you know, the boring world of mortgage qualifying. Um, 
right? No, it's not boring though, because right now this is so like mortgages are a real topic of conversation because of all of the rate hikes we've had over the last six months. It's become like people don't want to be talking about it, but they are because all of a sudden their mortgage payments have gone up astronomically. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. And I, I think, um, you know, for nerds like me, so, you know, absolutely a total, total nerd of the mortgage world. Um, it's like, you know, finally we're like the superstars, maybe like it's the excitement, like everybody wants to talk to a mortgage broker. Nobody wanted to talk to a mortgage broker, um, you know, in 2018. Right. But, uh, but yeah, everybody this year definitely wants to, wants to talk to a broker. They want to know what their options are, um, coming up for their renewals, especially, I think, uh, there's a, a, I'm not going to quote statistics that I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's an insanely high amount of people who took five-year fixed rate mortgages that are coming up for renewal this year. So, um, you know, and when they took those mortgages, their rates were two and a half percent, three percent, right? Um, you know, in that range coming up to renewals, we're in the four and a half, five to five and a half percent range. So, a uh, bit of payment shock for a lot of people, um, just hitting that renewal time period. And then, uh, so, so that has made this, you know, my job maybe a little bit easier this year, right? In terms of uh, the phone is ringing off the hook. Uh, but on the other hand, a little bit tougher because, um, you know, every, the cost of everything has gone up, a little bit of payment shock for some people trying to get uh, payments brought down so that life is still a little bit more affordable and shopping around to try to get people the best deal, best rates going. Uh, it's a little hard to sell somebody on four and a half when they're coming out of a 2% interest rate, right? So, um, so yeah, I guess a little bit of challenge from that side. Um, but uh, but yeah, I guess everybody wants to talk about rates, uh, prime rate, inflation, what's what's happening in the economy, what do we where do we think the rates are going, what's gonna happen over the next couple of years. Um, I don't have a crystal ball for a lot of that stuff, but um, but I you know, like I say, I, I will talk about any of it all all day long. So we could be here for you guys will have a degree in mortgage brokering by the end of the podcast, right? Excellent. Oh, so I've got I've got a question right off the bat. I just thought of what we're, while you were talking there, which is what, who's feeling the most pain right now, variable or fixed rate? Um, so interestingly, I think a lot of people would assume the variable, right? So, uh, for those that maybe don't know, variable rate mortgages are based on the prime rate, um, which in turn is based on the bank of Canada, adjusting the overnight lending rate to combat inflation. And this is what we have seen increase quite a bit over the last, um, year. Uh, and so those who are in a variable rate mortgage, there are two different types of variable rate mortgages. One where your payment stays the same, but the portion of your payment Payment that goes towards interest changes and though and then another type where your payment actually changes so we've seen a lot of people who um, saw all of their payment get eaten up by interest and then suddenly get hit with a bank saying hey you need to increase your mortgage payment when they didn't expect that uh, and then the other type where every you know two months their mortgage payment just increased again you know and then again and then again and then again and they kind of got sick and tired of getting the letters from the bank you know telling them that their payment was going to be higher again right um, the counter to this is fixed rate mortgages are based on the bond yield, Canada mortgage bonds, and these are based on sort of, um, you know, the market um, and the reaction in the stock market and things like that. So two different factors. And so everybody would assume right now that variable rate clients are the ones that have been hit or that are feeling the pinch the hardest. And it was interesting because we were talking to a lender the other day 
and they were going through their book of business in um, arrears. So the clients that are actually facing foreclosure or default um, that are in arrears on their mortgage payments. And uh, I think out of 30, again, I always get these stats told to me and then I never quite remember the exact number, but I think it was out of 300,000 mortgages or 30, I don't know. Anyways, there was like a hundred that were variable rate mortgages and it was less than 10% of their mortgages in arrears. So the mortgages that were in arrears were people in fixed rate mortgages. So I think the interesting thing that that told us was, um, I wish I had the real stats. I wish I knew that question was coming before the podcast. I would have looked up the total, <laughs> the, the firm numbers for you. But, uh, but the interesting thing that that sort of told us was, it, you know, if somebody's going to struggle to make their mortgage payment, they're going to struggle to make it regardless of the interest rate. You know, they're, it doesn't matter that their mortgage was at 1.9% or 2% at a five-year fixed, they were still struggling to make the payment, right? And even right now, I can tell you, I've just reviewed two deals for some refinances, some clients that are in some pretty tough positions, their current interest rates, 1.8 and 1.9% in fixed rate mortgages. So, it, you know, it, it, while we would assume that the people feeling the pinch more are the ones whose payments increased, it does tend to be that the ones I think right now who are going to struggle the most are the ones that are, uh, you know, they, they took a fix. Maybe they were first time buyers. They were a little bit more conservative. They bought at the maximum end of their budget, you know, something like that. Right. Um, and then the other piece to that too, is they're the ones that are going to feel that payment shock the most coming into their renewal. Because if you've got a mortgage rate of 1.8% and your payment is 1200 a month and you come to your renewal and now suddenly your interest rate is, you know, 5% and your payment is going up to close to 2000 a month, that's a really big moment of shock for you um, from a monthly affordability standpoint, right? Uh, there's a little bit of false sense of security, I think, with fixed rate mortgages in that you're like, oh, my payment is set. It's this, it's this for five years. And then you go out and you finance a car because that's affordable or, you know, you pay for extra things. Right. Um, whereas on the variable rate mortgages, a lot of those clients, they're, you know, they were, they were sort of prepared for some flexibility. They maybe didn't max themselves out or they've seen that payment increase. They've sort of eased their way into it. So it's not going to be as much payment shock for them when they hit their renewal. Mm. Now I didn't, did you know that Kim, that fixed rate mortgages are tied to bond yields? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I just assumed that they're all tied to the same interest rate, not to bond yields and bond yields. I don't follow them closely, Kim. I know I'm sure that you follow them more closely than I do have been a little crazy this last year. Haven't they? Yeah. Essentially uh, people need to pay more on those, those income payments. That's why it's called fixed income. So as, uh, as, interest rises, bonds have to pay out more. Otherwise people wouldn't buy bonds. <laughs> they have to be compensated because they do take a little bit of risk buying bonds versus a GIC. So yeah, just, it all, it all ties together. The mortgage world, the bond world, they're all very heavily tied together. And, and then layer on psychology, which Jill was uh, sort of heavily references referencing. There's a lot of psychology behind spending, spending behaviors. And I think lenders have a tricky job trying to suss out uh, when people are asking, should I do variable or fixed, trying to suss out what those personality types are. Will these people be able to handle surprises down the road or not? Yeah. This fixed obviously means fixed for now, not fixed forever. Yeah. It's just a variable, but on a slower 
a slower burn. And well, and the interesting thing to this too is if, um, you know, if anybody recalls the stress test that came out, right, um, back in, in 2017, um, we've already stress tested people's interest rates at 5.25% or higher over, you know, the last five years and six years. So, for those clients who do have a 1.8% or 1.9%, they qualified at a higher interest rate, assuming that if interest rates went up, they would still be able to afford their mortgage. But this, of course, was based on their situation at that time. And, you know, a lot of, and when we talk about consumer spending habits, just because they could afford the mortgage at that time, stress tested at 5.25, even though they're coming up to the renewal and the rate might be 5.25 when they come to their renewal, They've, in the meantime, you know, they've had another kid. They've got another kid in daycare they got to pay for. They, they bought a new car. They, you know, that they're financed, right? Their, their spending habits have changed since they were stress tested for that mortgage. So, you know, a little bit of payment shock, a little bit of change in habit over the last five years or that time period that they've been in that mortgage. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, a lot of, but theory, in theory, they should be able to afford it. We, we, you know, we uh, qualified them assuming the interest rate was going to be higher, but that doesn't necessarily mean that on the spending front, uh, you know, that they're still in the same position they were when they bought the house, right? Right. And I mean, it's a, a bit of a hard lesson to learn, right? A lot of people didn't know, really understand inflation because it wasn't an issue for the last, you know, dec several decades. So, yeah, long yeah, when, long when did we look at inflation in the media ever? You know, like it's like it suddenly it appeared and now, you know, everybody's talking about inflation and nobody even knew what inflation, you know, definition of inflation, you know, two years ago, nobody had any idea. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, the last time we saw, I, I believe the last time we saw inflation or, or interest rates getting up to where they are now was quite a while ago. Um, you know, I, I know that in the eighties, things got pretty crazy. You could get a GIC in like double digit returns in a GIC, which. The next closest time frame, and this is one that's probably the toughest for a lot of people to, to swallow. Um, and this will be mostly because of age groups and demographics of people and when they started purchasing. Um, but the next highest time that we saw Prime was actually in 2007. So it wasn't that long ago. Prime was at 6.25. Currently, Prime is at 6.7. So we are a little bit higher than we were in 2007. If anybody remembers 2007, uh, I don't. I don't know how old I was. I was. Uh, I was my 20s. I'm sure I don't remember it. But uh, but in you know, it, times were good, right? Things were booming. The economy was doing great. Houses were expensive. I know people. We've got clients now who bought houses in 2007, and the house is still worth the same as it was in 2007, right? Values were high, they came down, they're now kind of back up, right? So 2007 was a pretty good time. And what happened immediately after that was the financial crash in, you know, in 2008, 2009, interest rates plummeted. Um, it did take quite a bit of time. We saw prime drop down to 2.25 uh, during 2008, 2009. And it actually took 10 years for prime to get back up to partway where we were. So prime in 2019 was at 3.95. We were trending in 2018 and 2019 on that sort of increased prime front a little bit, but that was sort of, that was a really strong economic position for us to have prime around that 3.95 mark. Um, 
in 2018, 2019, we were kind of creeping up. And then of course COVID hits and, and here we go back down again. And, and then I think the part about this that has been the most dramatic or the most shocking for most people is that we went from, you know, two and a half percent prime to 6.7% prime in a year and, or less than a year. Right. And that for sure has been the piece that I think most people have just been like, Oh my God. Right. It's not unheard of that prime has been at 6% or 4%, right? Like this isn't an unheard of position for us to be in. And it's not like we're replaying the eighties where we were prime, you know, where interest rates were in, you know, like you said, the double digits. Um, but it's the velocity. Yeah. It's a lot to, uh, to adjust for in a year. Right. Yeah. I mean, you just talked about how mortgage payments could be almost doubled based on the, the change in interest rate. And that's, you know, that's, for anybody that's barely in a house or barely got their, you know, has their mortgage payment in their budget, that's, that can be insurmountable. Yeah. And, uh, and I think what, you know, interesting too, is a lot of people did their budget based on, you know, especially people who bought in 2020 and 2021, you know, when you're getting an interest rate, that's one and a half percent, you're doing your household budget on your payment. You're not really thinking or doing your budget on, what would my payment be if interest rates were normal, right? Because one and a half and 2% rates are not normal. That, you know, mortgages were on sale for two years. They're not on sale and they're not going to be on sale ever again, right? We might see the rates come back down into the three and a half range to the four and a half range. That may be a, a good position for us to be in or an average position for us to be in. But when people were taking their mortgage payments at one and a half and doing their, their budget based on that assumption, you know, it was hard. I think it's tough because a lot of people didn't really think about the fact that that's not how, what your rate is going to be for 25 years. That's, you might get a sale on your mortgage for five years, but it, your payment will be higher. Right. And, um, yeah. So again, I mean, payment, it's the year of payment shock. It's definitely a conversation that I've been having with a lot of people, uh, is, um, just, yeah, they're, they're coming up for renewal. They don't understand they've paid down their mortgage and they're like, I owe less on my mortgage and I have less, to, you know, but my payment is higher and I don't get it. Right. So, um, so that's definitely one big conversation that we've been chatting about a lot this year so far. Jill, have you noticed that the lenders are softer in terms of conditions moving forward because they don't want people to walk away from their debts and their houses? Have you experienced any, yeah, any flexibility that you haven't seen in the past in that front? In terms of the lenders working with clients, there's always been, um, you know, our lenders have always been really good at working with clients to help them in situations where they are struggling financially. We've seen some of the lenders doing amortization adjustments, pushing out amortization uh, on the mortgages and things like that to help get people's payments down. Um, we, you know, even all through COVID, we saw deferrals and things like that. Um, and that, I mean, not to jump onto another topic entirely, but the deferral aspect is also so a, a, key, a piece that's hitting us now because a lot of those people who did deferrals during COVID, they have to make up that extra payment. And now they're getting to the end of their term and they have these extra amounts being tacked onto their balance and their payments are getting adjusted because they actually owe more money because they deferred for three months and they didn't make all those payments. So it, there's a little bit more coming into play here all at the same time. But um, but yeah, we have seen our lenders that are willing to work with, uh, with the clients to help, uh, to help them in, you know, especially for clients that are suffering some of that payment shock. Um, but, uh, in terms of qualifying, qualifying a little bit stricter, um, 
you know, lenders are maybe a little bit more, uh, I don't know how to say the right word to that, but on edge, maybe they're a little bit more cautious. There's a little bit more risk involved, particularly in some of, you know, certain communities around across the country, Ontario right now, pretty high risk there. They're seeing valuations come down here in Alberta. We've tended to have a little bit you know, less risk tolerance with our lenders in general, um, just because Alberta does tend to have a pretty high foreclosure rate. It's the highest in the country, in fact. Uh, and so we, we've already had a little bit lower risk tolerance here in Alberta and, and our values have already kind of done some fluctuation and stuff. So I think here we're pretty used to it, but in some of the other parts of the country, like Toronto, they're not used to pay to valuation drops, right? For for their market, valuations have just gone up, 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 and up year over year, year over year. So for them to be in a position right now where, you know, people bought houses in 2020, 2021, and they're getting to the renewal, you know, maybe they were in short-term private financing, alternative financing, and things like that. They're getting to the renewal and the property's not worth what they owe on it. And, you know, so they're they're we've definitely seen some leeway with lenders that are renewing and, and those kinds of options. But we've also seen some, some lenders that are just like hard nose, give us our money back. We, they, they want their equity out, especially in private lending situations. So what does that actually look like? So somebody can't pay their mortgage. The lender says you're out of there. Do they just literally hand the keys over to that lender, pop it in the mail and, and walk away. And the lender just puts that house on the market. It depends on the type of, well, first it depends on the province. Different provinces do have different foreclosure laws, um, but it also depends on the type of the mortgage. So for example, if you purchase the home with less than 20% down and your mortgage is insured by one of the three main insurers, right? CMHC, Sage and Canada Guarantee, uh, they, th that insurance is called default insurance. So what happens in that situation is you've paid that insurer premium, your mortgage is insured so that if you were to foreclose on the mortgage, the lender doesn't lose any money. So what happens is the insurer steps in and takes over the foreclosure process. So they're the ones that are going to have the property. They sell the property. If there's a shortfall in that sale, they do come after you and you will owe that short sale. A lot of people file a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy to, you know, to manage that. Um, and then, of course, there is a credit rebuild time period, you know, before you're going to be able to purchase again, five to seven years down the road, depending on how long it takes you to pay that off. Right. So, um, so there that if default insurance is going to manage that in one way uh, in Alberta. Uh, if you're in a conventional mortgage, there's a sewer seize policy. So if you do foreclose on a on a property here and you hand in the keys, if they sell it in a short sale, they're not necessarily coming after you for the short sale. Um, but other provinces, that's not necessarily true. I'm not an expert on real estate law in those provinces, but uh, but they may still be able to come after you for any short sale um, in the property. And of course, which would result in you probably are filing a, you know, a bankruptcy or something like that to avoid paying it, right? So, um, so it can have some pretty serious consequences for sure, which is one of the reasons you know, why we wanna make sure that when you're looking at a purchase price, you're looking at a property, it's affordable for you. You know, it, again, it's affordable for you at this budget, but it's also affordable for you if the rates do go up a little bit because you want to make sure that you can manage those payments, never maxing out your absolute maximum. This is something that does come up with us a lot where someone wants to spend a certain price point, 
and they can't qualify it for themselves. So they bring in a co-signer to help them qualify for a higher price point. And one thing that I usually recommend in those situations is you have to think about the fact that your co-signer is not paying your mortgage payment, right? So just because your co-signer is helping you get a higher purchase price, is this still affordable? So you really want to make sure the clients are, you know, doing the math on affordability just because they want to spend that much doesn't mean they can actually truly afford that much and still have that buffer so that they're not in that situation. Um, and definitely a conversation to be had if, if you are somebody that's more in the alternative or private lending space for, you know, for whatever reason, there's a lot more risk that does come from, from that type of lending, right? I had a client uh, not too long ago try and purchase a house. He's He's very well capitalized, but he's retired and doesn't have the income uh, that the bank's looking for, even though he's got piles and piles of money. When you were talking about co-signing, do you ever see that retirees have their kids co-sign with them just to get a, like to be able to qualify for those mortgages now that they're retired? Um, so actually, I do a lot of retirement planning uh, for my clients. So this is one that I really actually enjoy quite a bit. So thanks for bringing that up, Kim. Uh, I, I, uh, so an interesting situation. I mean, and, and this is one that can be really frustrating for people who are at that retirement age, because the last time they got a mortgage, you know, was probably back in, you know, the 90s or something where you could literally walk into the bank branch, you knew the bank, the branch manager, you know, you slapped down a copy of your pay stub and they handed you the money, right? And now, you know, we've got debt service ratios and qualifying rules and stress test and, you know, all like so much more paperwork required. And it can be really frustrating for people who are, uh, you know, they were used to it, you know, in the eighties or the nineties, when they got their first mortgage, it was easy. Right. So, um, so that can be a little bit of a challenge for them, but we do have options. So particularly your client who's got about boatloads of money, we have high net worth programs that we can qualify the clients on with where it doesn't matter what their income is. So we've got clients who've got, you know, uh, minimum 250,000 in personal, like, like assets in the bank. Um, to qualify for high net worth. Some lenders will look for 500,000 in, in liquid assets, but minimum 250,000. So if their client does have more money in the bank and they actually just don't want to pull that money out, they want to finance instead because they're, they're trying to, you know, they've got that money invested and they don't want to pull it all out all at once. Um, we can qualify them on that, on having that money in the bank under a high net worth program where the debt ratios don't actually matter. So as long as the client can show that they have the funds that if they needed to, they could pull those funds to make the payments, uh, then we can, we've had high net worth deals with 200% debt ratios on them before. Um, so we don't actually have to bring in co-signers in those situations. Uh, there's also products for retirees. If you're over 55, there's reverse mortgage products and things like that. So where you can find finance and do equity takeouts of your property uh, without having to make mortgage payments. And those types of lending situations don't actually, they don't care about your debt ratios because you don't have a mortgage payment to make. Right. So, uh, so there are ways to be able to tap into that equity um, without having to necessarily divest any investments or pull out of RSPs and have tax implications for that. Um, so there is definitely lots of ways we can help um, you know, different, different programs. But one of the things um, that I do usually talk to, especially if they're a little bit older in retirement is depending on how many properties they have, they might actually want to have one of their kids on that mortgage with them in case something happens. Right. So, um, you know, 
power of attorney type situation if there's you know heart attack stroke or death or th things like that so there can be ad you know advantages to having um, one of their kids on their mortgage with them especially once they get a little bit older um, you know into their 80s and things like that um, so we do a lot of planning with people <laughs> from that side but definitely one of the things that we look at when we're talking about adding the kids to co-sign for the parents which we do as well um, you know is you really want to make sure that the that the kids know that they have to fully debt service their parents' mortgage now on any of their future mortgage applications. So if they haven't set themselves up with their own home or if they're thinking about buying a rental or something like that, there are definitely considerations that we do take into, into account when we're looking at a file like that just to make sure it makes sense overall. Yeah, I, um, I would just say you can have a power of attorney without a person being on the mortgage. So if, if that's actually the concern, you would just get a power of attorney. If you were concerned that sometime in the future, you may need help with, with managing your finances because you're now um, incapacitated, then a power of attorney is the right thing for that. And you can deal with the mortgage, you can deal with anything with the power of attorney. Yeah, the only tough piece to this that I'll counter on that is, is getting new financing. Um, not a lot of lenders will allow a power of attorney to apply for financing on behalf of somebody else. So there can be, although I understand that they absolutely can do it, um, there are a lot of restrictions from the lending side. So if you're looking to apply for financing to say, keep somebody in their home longer, you need equity out of the home to do renovations, put in a ramp, bathroom renovations or whatever. If you're trying to apply for that under a power of attorney, there's most lenders aren't going to take it. So, um, so just, I, I, yeah, I don't, I hear what you're saying. I don't mean to. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's, it doesn't surprise me because, um, you know, I think if there's one thing that financial institutions are good at, it's at creating their own red tape, making things more complicated than it needs to be. <laughs> and which is exactly that because a power person with a power attorney could sell the property and clear out the financing and, and has the legal authority to, uh, enter into a mortgage agreement, even if the lender, if the lender won't do it, it doesn't matter that they have the legal authority, but they do, at least in Alberta, I can't speak for all provinces, but they're pretty similar across Canada. But um, I mean, they have all kinds of concerns with, so if you're going to add somebody to a mortgage, my legal advice to them would be, well, also get added to the title because of that very reason that you've now got a, you're now on the hook for the mortgage jointly is usually how they do it. So, and that means the bank doesn't even have to go after the other person. They can just go after you for whatever they want to do. It's, it's, and so if you don't have, if you don't also own the underlying security, then you're, it's a huge risk to take. Yeah. So most mortgage lenders, when we add someone as a co-signer, they want them added to the title. If we are adding them as a guarantor, which is a little bit of a different situation, this is where somebody can be on the mortgage, but not on the title. But typically if someone's going in as an actual co-signer, they are on the title and they are fully on the hook. That mortgage will report to their bureau and everything like that too. Right. So, so then that creates another problem because, um, <laughs> they, if you're just, if you're on title, that means that uh, if you're on title and, but you don't really own the property, which is kind of what we're talking about. Like kids, they don't really own the property, but they're on title to help the parents to get approved for the mortgage. This is the kind of situation that we're talking about. They legally, if you're on title, you could block anything to do with that property because you have to sign. And so 
you could block refinancing, you could block the sale, whatever. And, and often people get added to title and the mortgage when it's like, they're also kind of planning for their estate planning situation where they can avoid probate if they're on as joint tenants, when the person dies and they just get the property and everything just carries on and you're, you're able to avoid that, which is good. That's a good thing. But in order to do that and how like, have it play out the way that it should, which is mom or dad or both of them whose home it actually is can do whatever they want with the property. And the children can't don't have a say in it. They just get it. If they die in that case, there, there needs to be some other kind of an agreement because what's actually happening is there's a trust created because they, they, the children have legal title, but they don't actually, it's still, it's not theirs. It's really their parents. So in that type of a situation, um, you can enter into there, there's lawyers deal with this in a couple of different ways that I'm aware of. One, the way that I like the best is they enter into what you would call an off title agreement that basically says, you know, the children say, we know we're being added, um, to title, but it's, it's really for convenience for estate planning purposes. And also because we are securing the loan, help, helping mom and dad with the loan. So if anything happens, you know, if the property sells, we're protected by that mortgage agreement as well. They can't just keep coming after us. Uh, but we, it also says, you know, we can't, we can't, uh, we have to sign anything that mom and dad want us to sign because they want to deal with the property. They can sell it if they want that kind of thing. If you don't have that kind of an agreement, then there can be real problems. And, um, when people are winding down this life thing, which is, you know, which happens, we all die. But when we're getting, I, I won't, but I, yeah, I, some of us will live forever. I probably will. I probably will die. <laughs> and so when you're getting to that point, um, it sometimes brings out the worst in people and people don't act the way that they said they would act. A hundred, hundred percent. And we, we do see this a lot. I'm not trying to interrupt you here. No, that's okay. okay. That's, that's what all I, I wanted to say. Like that was, was just flagging some things that, um, because a lot of times people don't think through all of those consequences, potential consequences. They just think we have a good relationship right now. Everything's going to be fine. And of course the kids will sign whatever I want them to sign. And then, you know, if they don't have an agreement and then the child won't sign, well, now it's too late. Yeah. And in this book, this actually works both ways. And I actually see it cause bigger issues. The other direction is when parents co-sign for their kids. Mm -hmm. Um, but a hundred percent. And you know, when we talk, and this is why I say, like, I actually, I like estate planning in terms of mortgage finance. I like this. I like helping people navigate this kind of stuff. Um, you know, setting them up for their retirement in advance before they retire and things like that. But when we do talk about bringing the kids on, it is a lot of the time it's the estate planning situation for that pro situation. Um, but I, I mean, I'm not the, like, I want them to talk to their lawyer. I want them to talk to their accountant. I want them to know about capital gains implications. What type of property is this? You know, any of that kind of inheritance, whatever, right. I I'm not advising them on any of that. So, um, but I like being part of that solution for them and helping them get set up properly. Because I think a lot of times, you know, we've got people, they don't even know that these are options that they can explore. Right. Um, or they get to the end of life and, and, you know, they're in maybe their last year, 10 years 
and they don't know, you know, we, and it's sad, but we see a lot of people struggle in their pension incomes and retirements, um, cost of living goes up and, you know, and before you know it, they've got a lot of debt and then they're, you know, they're getting to the end and, and struggling with, um, with those payments and things like that. So I, I do enjoy that aspect of the business is helping people set that up. Um, but to your point, um, yeah, I see this a lot more on the flip, on the flip side, parents co-signing for their kit, for the kids to buy the first house, right? The kids need those parent co-signers maybe for, um, credit support on the deal. If they don't have a really strong credit bureau themselves or strong credit history, uh, or if they don't necessarily qualify for the purchase price that they're wanting. Um, and so we're bringing in, uh, you know, their parents are co-signing on that purchase for them. And I've seen quite a few times, I, you know, I had an email in my inbox last week, Dad co-signed for them last year. Things are not great with dad. They want dad off of the, you know, off of the mortgage of their house, right? Because, um, you know, whatever the, however that relationship has broken down or what that situation is, it also causes issues when we've got other siblings and other family members. You know, I've had files where we've had grandparents co-signing or older parents co-signing and one of them passes away. And, I, and then you've got a situation where the rest of the family is trying to maybe clean up the estate and they can't because the mortgage dad's name's on the title of a house or something along those lines too, right? So um, so it does, kind of, it, it goes both ways, but I do see more issues where the parents want to be a little bit more controlling about what's happening with the property or with the house and the kids want their freedom you know, and, and, uh, and yeah. And so some, some issues there, kids want to refinance, they want to build an addition, they want to sell, they want to do whatever. And the parents don't agree with their plans. And now their parents have to sign because they're on that title as well. Right. Yeah. So be careful. Don't just throw people onto title because, well, you know, the, the whole thing, like the whole thing about buying a home is in my opinion, has become a little crazy. Like people feel a pressure to buy a home, like, and you've got to do it. And if you don't do it, you're somehow like not an adult or something like that. Ah, it's the American dream, right? We, I, yeah. And Canada has the highest home ownership rate per capita of, of anywhere in the world. We, we own more homes than any other country in the world. We rent less than anywhere else. And I, so, yeah, it's the, uh, we've sold the American dream, right? You, you go to school, you graduate, you get a degree, you find a partner, you buy a house, you have a, you get married, you have a baby and you do all these things and probably not in that order, you know? And, uh, but, and that's part of like, you know, to being an adult, right? You're like, you're 20 years old and you're like, what are we supposed to do? Oh, we're supposed to buy a house. Right. And there's that pressure to rush into that situation. And it doesn't, doesn't have to, I was in my thirties before I bought my first house. I'm, I'm 41 and I'm rent and I love it. Yeah. So it honestly, it, uh, I mean, there's, a, I've had conversation with a couple of people in the last month where I've said like, why do you want to buy so bad? Like you're paying a thousand bucks a month in rent right now. Like you can't, and they, and you know, and they wanted their budget to be around that. And, you know, when you're talking about that monthly budget, well, if you want to be in within a thousand dollars a month, you're probably looking at a $60,000 property. It's got condo fees. It's probably an older property. There might be a special assessment. Those condo fees might go up. Um, you know, you've got property taxes. There's probably repair maintenance, things like that, that you're going to have to deal with. Like if you're, if you're renting for a thousand bucks a month, like let your landlord replace the fridge because if your fridge breaks and you own you, you know, that's more than your rent to fix your, to replace your fridge. Right. So definitely there are some advantages. Um, 
to, to, you know, to renting, but, uh, I mean, I wouldn't be a mortgage broker if I said that everyone I'll call you after Evan and we'll get you, if we'll get you pre-qualified, we'll get you into a house. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm good for now, but, but <laughs> I, I think, I think that's kind of a, like a lot of the issues we've been talking about so far are things like, you know, people running up against the, the limits of their budget and they pushed it to get into the home. And sometimes that's a first time buyer just thinking they have to get into a home. Now in some places like, um, Toronto, Vancouver, um, Vancouver Island, it, it, like it perpetuates that thinking or it has perpetuated that thinking because the market's done nothing but go up. It's just gone up, um, for almost straight for 20 years because they, they, they did have a little bit of a dip perhaps in 2008 as well, but it didn't last for long in Vancouver and, and Victoria, which are areas I'm familiar with. They just, they maybe had like a sideways bump for like a, maybe a year and back heading straight up Like sometimes 20% increases over a year. And so, okay, you get into a house there, you're seeing capital appreciation. Uh, in other words, you bought your house for a hundred thousand dollars and then in, within a year, it's $120,000. So even if your mortgage is still the same, you've made $20,000 in a year. And, and, there, and there's no house in Vancouver you can buy for $100,000. So you paid a million dollars and within a year you earned $200,000 of equity on that property. Yeah. Because, yeah. Or, or, yeah. or you bought it in the early 2000s and so it was more reasonable and now it's worth a, a few million dollars and you, you can't really access it because you can't afford the mortgage payments, but you're sitting on this asset worth $4 million or whatever. And so, okay, there it's like, yeah, you get, if you highly leverage yourself in pretty soon, you're not highly leveraged anymore because the value has gone up. And so everything's great. Everything's fantastic. But if the property value goes down and you are super highly leveraged on the way in, it's, that's where it gets tough. Because yeah, and I think one of the bonuses or advantages that we've got here in Alberta, and I do work on files across the country. I've got a team of agents. I've got agents in Ontario, throughout Ontario, BC, you know, Vancouver, the island, and here in Alberta, Saskatchewan. So we work on files across the country. And, um, I, you know, and one of the interesting things that I always think is kind of great about Alberta is if, you know, if you don't qualify for a $400,000 mortgage, you probably qualify for a $350,000 mortgage. You can still buy a nice house. You know, if you don't qualify for 300,000, you qualify and you qualify for 200,000, you can still buy a house. Like there's all, you know, there's typically always something that's within someone's affordability range in Alberta, right? You can, I mean, you know, condos, $100,000 condos, things that are nice and good condition, you know, stuff like that, right? So uh, small, there's small towns, you can buy an actual house for $100,000 in a small town, you know, an hour's drive from the city, right? So um, that's kind of one of the nice things about Alberta. Where we tend to see people really leverage themselves are in areas like Vancouver or Toronto, where, um, you know, you can't, you can't get onto the property ladder unless you qualify for $600,000 or more. If you don't like you, we've had clients, you know, school teachers, accountants, lawyers, you know, working professionals two double income households qualify perfectly great credit down payment, you know, you know, 10% down or whatever, and still can't buy a house because there's nothing for sale in their price point. And that is where I think there's a lot of pressure for people uh, to, you know, to kind of push with beyond their limit and to get, you know, to get into a property because you're right. They're seeing all, you know, it's just going to be more expensive next year. Right. Um, 
but I do, I do like to, you know, have people really think about what that cost looks like for them. And a lot of times people will say, you know, like I get a lot of those phone calls, like when's the best time to buy a house? And I'm like, I don't know when you're ready. Like the best time to buy a house is when you want to buy a house. It's when you're ready to buy a house. There's the interest rates, they go up, they go down. The values of properties, they go up, they go down. I've lost money on houses. I've made money on houses. Like, you know, none of that is, you can't control any of that. All you can control is, can you afford it? Are you ready? Do you have the down payment? Are you in a position in your life that you're not going to move every couple of years, right? Are you, you know, are you trying to create stability in your life? Are you ready to purchase? That's the only part of the whole equation that you can control. You can't control government regulations, inflation, you know, wow, maybe you can control inflation. Just stop buying stuff, guys. Like stop ordering yeah. new couches and new cars. Stop, but, buying, stop buying bread. That's, yeah. Nobody needs eggs anyway, but uh, yeah. The demand no, but, goes yeah. down for food. The price will go down. So just stop eating. Just stop eating. Right. <laughs> That's my new, that was my new year's resolution goal. Just, just how to stop go. eating. Just, yeah. Call, I'm just doing my bit for inflation. Right. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Jill, what do you find that, um, like on the psychology side of borrowing, what are some things that you notice with young people in terms of their lack of fear or, um, or too fearful to jump in and, and talk to somebody like you? Is there, is there a component that you guys explore on that side? Um, you know, I think that people are, like it's literally split 50, 50 They're you know, they either are completely like oblivious of what their financial situation is, or they're like hyper aware of what their financial situation is. And, you know, the oblivious to their financial system are or situation are the ones that are just like, Hey, let's go get a more, like, let's buy that. That looks cool. Let's go. You know, they, they're just like, yeah, we got, we got 10 grand in the bank. Let's buy a house. Let's go after it. Right. Um, the hyper aware, you know, are the ones that are like, they've been saving for years. They're analyzing the markets. They're like, is this a good investment? And they tend to be the ones that are a little bit more afraid. It's interesting when I have introductory calls with clients and I usually ask, is there anything that you're concerned about on your credit? Do you know what your credit score is? the people of good credit, they never know what their credit score is. And they're always like, Oh, I don't know. I, yeah. Like I, I might've made a cell phone payment late, like three years ago. I don't know. And then they always have like a fantastic credit situation. The ones that like, you know, when you, when, when I say like, what do you know about your credit situation? Do you know, is there anything I should know about? If they tell me their credit score, I know they have, they, they, there's issues, right? They're they like, they have, they know that they've made some mistake. They got some debt. They're monitoring it. They're trying to get approved for more loans or things like that. Right. If they're, uh, so, but yeah, I mean, there tends to be two, two totally different schools of thought there. Like, um, but it, I mean, the psychology of buyers is pretty interesting, um, to explore. Like, and I don't know if I would say young, like when you, when you classify for young people and we're talking about first time buyers, like, the the youngest generation I find tends to be like a little bit more responsible than maybe like my generation. Our generation was just kind of like, oh, oil money. We do what we can, like get the truck, get the RV, get the, you know, we're financing it all like YOLO. Like we want the big house. We want the big truck. We want the camp camper. We want the whole, you know, that generation wants the whole thing. And we want it now. And we want it right now. And I don't care. Just what's the monthly payment. Okay, cool. Right. And I do find that the younger generation, these guys that, you know, that they're coming up and they're in their twenties and stuff, um, they're a lot more savvy. They've, they've been, 
raised a little differently. They're a little bit more respectful of money. They've saved some money a little bit better. They, they're not financed out. You know, you're, you're, you ask them what their vehicle is and it's like, they're driving a 2012 Toyota Tercel. They're not in the 2023 Dodge Ram. That's, you know, 150 grand, right? Like they, they've, they've been, they're planning a little bit more. So I do, I, um, yeah, everybody always says like, Oh, in my day, like when I was a kid, but actually I think like in my day when I was a kid and for the record, I'm not that old, but, uh, but like, I think we were the ones that were bad. Like we, I think that, uh, you know, anyway, our generation's doing a good job raising today's kids. How's that? There's hope. That's There's great. Hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My kids, are, my kids, are, I have two kids that are working and one's 18, one's 16. They're better with money than I was at that age. Yeah. But, I think they save, they know, like they're, they know what the world, how the world, they want nice stuff and they're going to save for it. Right. They're I mean, I'm on them. So like, I'm going to take some credit for that because I'm their dad and I I'm on them about making sure they're better than I was. But, um, and I was, I was able to save when I was younger, but I also bought stuff. And actually a lot of the stuff that I bought when I was like 18, 19, I actually still have, which is very weird because I don't have, there's not a lot of stuff I bought after that that I still have, but I do have like, I mean, a you're lot just, of- You're living in the past. That hoodie's got to go. It ha- it's been stained for years, Evan. It doesn't fit anymore. Really nice though. It's so comfortable. <laughs> it, you know what? It's the classic do as I say, not as I do mentality, right? Like, yeah, you know, but I do think it's interesting seeing this younger generation. They're, they're, you know, the- they got the different kinds of bank accounts. They're investing, they're in quest trade, they're a wealth one, whatever they're, you know, they're thinking about this kind of stuff and they, you know, they've got plans in place and that's been really, um, I don't know. I don't know. makes me feel like garbage about myself. Right. When I was 18, I was like, travel, move around, spend all my money on airplane tickets. Right. Like I never saved anything. So remind me, were you not in Banff for a while living it up? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I lived the Banff life. I was there for eight years. So (laughs) I went there when I was 18 and, and I left there when I was, I got, well, eight years, I guess, 26, 27. And, um, and I remember the reason I left Banff was because someone said I was the company mom. And I was like, I'm 26. Like I'm not, I'm 26. Like, but they, but every, but every year, everybody's still 18. And, uh, and I wasn't, I was getting older and all the staff were 18 every year. So that, yeah, somebody called me the company mom and I was like, peace. And then I, you know, so then I was trapped, like, and then I went abroad and, you know, did all that. Right. But, yeah, but all those memories from traveling, you, those stay forever. They never, uh, you know, what else stays forever? in money in your bank that's invested that's properly at that's 18 it goes down inflation makes it worth less over time yeah yeah you know what so what you're saying those is memories they get better with time this is why our generation has is you know financed out the nut right yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm just kidding we're not actually that badly financed out the nut the world you know our generation everybody says that we think about that a lot um the, i think the average consumer debt per household is around 25,000 or something like that. Alberta is the highest of course of anywhere in the country. Um, but I don't 25,000 of average household consumer debt, not including mortgages, right. Isn't, isn't that bad. Again, do, nobody fact check this podcast for statistical <laughs> accuracy afterwards, please. Oh, isn't it, isn't it? I just say uh, things so that they sound like they're true with enough enthusiasm. I thought it was 90% of statistics are made up. Of course. 
Yeah. <laughs> You're fine. Um, yeah, so we've on this podcast before, we've talked about the Spousal Buyout Program. You help people with that as well, right? Yeah, so um, I do a lot of divorce financing, um, particularly in the last few years. Um, COVID, I don't know. Either you loved your spouse during COVID and it was great, or you realize that you have nothing in common and you don't want to be in the same house as them for two whole years straight. So a uh, lot of divorce coming out of COVID. Um, so spousal, the spousal bio program in and of itself is a little bit of an interesting uh, financing product. Um, and there's a little bit of technicality to explaining that, but in case you guys want to nerd out with me here. Uh, yeah, you don't have to go, like we, we've already had an episode where we, we got into the details, but maybe you can just share like um, a refresher. So anybody that didn't listen to that episode can get, you know, get a taste and go back and listen. And anyone who did listen can have their memory refreshed. Yeah. So, um, well, when it comes to divorce financing, there's a few different ways that this goes. You're either buying somebody out to stay in the house, you're selling it, you're separating and you're buying two new properties, you know, kind of thing. Um, and the amounts that you're going to be buying each other out of are going to vary, you know, case by case, depending on what that asset breakdown looks like in your relationship, right? Maybe you're paying out more in you know, RSP contributions or, you know, moving those over or bank account savings, then buying out equity of the house, who knows, right? There, there's a, de there's definitely different ways that that gets balanced out with every situation in a, when it comes to separating that, the asset of the house, um, and the, you know, and buying somebody out, um, the first way that we're going to look at that usually is to see if we can just do a regular refinance. Can we get enough money out of just a refinance on the property in order to pay out the X, right? And buy out that property. Uh, but when we don't get enough money out of the property on just a standard refinance, because on a standard refinance, we can only borrow up to 80% of the value of the property. So if we need to go to a higher loan to value at higher, you know, if we need to get more money out than 80% of the value of the property, this is where we look at the spousal bio program where we can go up to 95% of the value of the program, but you do have to pay to insure that mortgage. Um, so I know earlier in the podcast, we talked about CMHC, Canada Guarantee, right? That default mortgage insurance. So when a mortgage is what we call high ratio, so this is where you owe more than 80% of the value of the property, that mortgage does need to be insured. And so the spousal bio program is, a, is an area where we can help clients get to that 95% equity stake, but effectively it's one partner buying the property off of them and their ex, right? So, um, so that they can get back to that 95%, get the equity out in order to pay out the ex, but they do have to pay for, to insure that. So, um, yeah, without getting too much into the details on it, it is an option to be able to finance back up to 95%, but there is stipulations with that program around how that's outlined in your separation or divorce agreement, um, and stuff like that. So now, along that same train of thought, um, spousal support, which is a way that in divorce, um, we kind of rebalance the income or move income from one person's income to the other person's income. So increase someone's and decrease the other person's. Um, does that count for income and what about child support? Does that count as income? Yeah. For the purpose of getting approved for mortgage. And how yeah. So, sorry, keep going. No, no. And how does that work? That's it. That was. 
Yeah. I know. I keep jumping in and then I'm like, oh, you're not done yet. Sorry. <laughs> Bad for that. Uh, so yeah, we absolutely, we can use alimony and child support as income. We can also use child tax benefit. There are a little bit of restrictions when it comes to ages. So we're not going to use child support for, um, a, you know, a kid that's 18, right? If it's the last year or they're going into university and they're maybe only getting that support payment for a couple of years, we may get to use it on some exceptions. We're not, you know, but that's, you know, it's, this is typically for, um, you know, kids that are younger and stuff like that. Right. So, uh, but we can look at using that as income to help qualify. So the, the one partner who's receiving the income, we can use that to help qualify them for a mortgage, but we also have to be cautious when you're negotiating this kind of stuff, because we also, for the person paying it, we have to account for that as a debt payment for that person paying it. So I've seen, you know, divorce situations where the one partner is paying the other $7,000, $8,000 a month in support payments. And when you add a seven or $8,000 a month payment, debt payment to their personal liability, it doesn't matter that they make $300,000 a year they can't buy anything, right? When they're paying out seven or $8,000 a month, which, you know, is $80,000 a year effectively or whatever of income, right? When you're paying that much out, we don't just look at somebody's 300K and say, oh, okay, well, we're gonna take 80 out of that because you pay that in support. Um, we can do that with alternative lending, but we can't do that with our traditional bank lending. And so if you're putting a $7,000 a month payment into someone's liabilities, you're now in a situation where one partner that's, you know, stay at home with the kids making $80,000 a year in support payments qualifies for a pretty nice house, right? They can qualify typically 400,000 range, you know, nice house. And the partner paying it, despite making $300,000 a year, can't afford to buy a house because unless they have 20% down and goes into, you know, the alternative lending space, which comes with higher interest rates and things like that, right? So, um, so there is something that we do want to, you know, we do like to kind of keep in consideration when, when those situations are getting negotiated to make sure that both parties in the divorce can move on with their lives, right. And can afford to move on with their lives. What does that timing look like? Like when would a lawyer consider bringing in a lender when negotiating those support payments? I like to get, I like to do pre-approval for the clients before they finalize their separation agreement um, to make sure that they can move forward with what they want, especially if they're doing a spousal buyout, because if you're incorporating, you know, into your separation agreement that one party is taking over the property out of the other one, and that the amount that they're going to be paying out, we need to know that this, that the person taking over that mortgage or taking over that property can qualify on the income that they're getting in order to do that. Right. So we'd like to do that pre-approval before they sign that separation agreement. Oftentimes um, we'll do it in conjunction. So we're almost at, you know, agreement signing stage. Everything is sort of drafted up. We've done the pre-approval. We know that they're sort of ready to go. We'll submit live to a lender, get them financing, so that they know that once they sign that agreement, that they can, you know, obtain that financing. And usually the financing is conditional on the agreement being signed. Um, so we like to kind of work hand in hand um, with the, with, you know, with the lawyer, with their accountant, whatever, while they're in that stage, just to make sure that yes, everybody can move forward. We qualify for what we want. Um, I'll give you an example of this. I had a client who they had um, drafted up the agreement, the separation agreement as child support and alimony and the child support payment, I'm going to make up numbers here was, you know, 1500 a month and the alimony was 2000 a month. Right. And then, hold on, Joe, before you go on, I just have to say, 
Alimony is an American term. We don't use that here. <laughs> Spousal support. I'm sorry. But I knew Evan was going to come in on that. I'm I, sorry. I just knew it. <laughs> That's funny because we call it alimony all the time in the world. Okay. But I will, I will stand corrected and I will people, people, change my, I mean, you say it because everyone knows what it means. And so, you know, maybe I'm just being extra. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to, I will, I'm going to write that down and I'm going to put the, you know, I'm going to try to change my terminology here. Um, it's fine. If you don't people, all, all that's important in communication is that people understand what you're talking about. And I think when you say alimony, people, <laughs> right. Yeah. But if you're so, looking up something about alimony in Canada, it doesn't exist. It spells of support. There you go. Okay. Sorry for derailing you. Carry on. All right. Well, hey, derail all you want. This is your podcast. Um, so, you know, so I had this client where the, the agreement stated spousal support, 2000 a month, child support of 1500 a month. And then when we got to the application stage and, you know, pulled his bureau, uh, we had the mortgage for the house that the ex was staying in and the mortgage payment was 2000 a month. And then we had a vehicle loan on the credit bureau. And that was the ex's vehicle loan. And it was 1500 a month. And because that's reporting the client's credit bureau, we needed to debt service the mortgage payment and the, and the car loan. And we also had to debt service the out, the spousal support and the child support. And so the numbers lined up and I was, you know, and so we went back and asked like, why, why do these numbers line up? And they were like, well, actually it's because I'm just paying the mortgage and the car payment. And that's the agreement is I'm going to make the mortgage payment and the car payment. And um, so the lawyer was able to redraft the separation agreement to actually state that, you know, the one party was going to make the mortgage payment and the vehicle loan payment instead of calling it, you know, support payments, because now we were able to move forward and actually purchase with only needing to debt service the existing mortgage and the car loan, as opposed to needing to basically double up on those, um, which would have made sure, you know, made the ex not able to qualify for anything at all. Right. So, um, so good to check in, I guess, in terms of, um, terminology maybe, or how you're drafting that up. Um, I've also had some situations where people have come to me and asked if it was more beneficial for them to take a lump sum payout from their ex, as opposed to receiving support payments. Um, so, in, you know, in that situation, you know, the party didn't have any income, they didn't work and getting a big lump sum payout of a hundred grand was great. But unless you're buying a house for a hundred grand, even you have no income, you don't qualify for any financing. Um, so in that situation, that client, it made more sense for them to actually take, you know, they took a partial payout. So they had a down payment and to actually negotiate for a spousal support payment on a monthly basis that we actually had income to help them qualify for so that they actually could then get financing. Right. So, um, so lots of different things that can be considered when going through that situation, different ways that it can look on paper, uh, to a lender, um, to be able to actually qualify for financing and moving forward. Let me give you an example, Kim, of what it looks like if you don't have the mortgage broker involved at the stage, as Jill described. So I have a file. Don't get me wrong. I, like, Not much would have changed here on this file, but let me just tell you what, what happened. So I was on for the guy. He's older, wanted to retire, but he's not retiring yet. He's working in the oil patch, making a lot of money. And... Uh, the wife is getting just 50% of his paycheck. And that's what the spell support is. It's not a set amount. It's 50% of his paycheck. And so every month they do the math and he sends her 50% and, and they're happy. They've got a condo 
in their names and they have their home in their names. And part of the agreement was he's going to get her off the condo and they're going to sell the home. Well, when this was all signed up, probably last summer or something like that, um, it wasn't a great time to sell. So they're like, well, ah, let's just not sell the house for now. And so now he's trying to refinance the condo, um, but he's still on the mortgage for the home, for the family home. And he's not paying her a set amount of spousal support. He's paying her 50% of his paycheck. And so um, I hooked my client up with another guest. And by the way, Jill, you are in very good company. We've only had amazing mortgage brokers on this podcast and you're one of them. So welcome to the club. <laughs> another, I, I hooked our client up with a, another former podcast guest, Lucy Ruda, who by the way, apparently was amazing and, and did a great job, but wasn't able to get it done because no, nobody would provide the lending because his debt service ratio just didn't make sense. It couldn't work. He couldn't, he couldn't qualify for that mortgage alone. So now what does that mean in reality? Cause basically my guy had like, I think it was 90 days to get her off the condo. <laughs> We're well, well past that. Um, and so technically he's in default under the, their agreement, but, um, in reality, like she's not suffering any damage because, you know, he's still paying the mortgage for the condo. And, you know, the plan was that they sell the house and she decided she didn't want to sell the house, which is fine. Like everyone, nobody's upset here. I don't think, but it's still kind of a precarious situation. And if, if they weren't okay with each other, this could be a real problem. There could be civil litigation and all kinds of expenses with this. And, you know, things didn't go quite as planned. And my guy didn't know that he wouldn't be able to just get her off the mortgage because why wouldn't he be able to afford it? He's affording it. So why wouldn't he be able to, he was the only one making money. Anyways, now he's got to sell the condo, which he's fine. He wants to anyways. He's, he, he doesn't want to hold on to this thing any longer and, and that will be fine. But, um, you, it could have been a lot worse than it turned out to be. And if they knew that before signing the agreement, they could have changed the agreement to make sure that it was going to work. Yeah. And I think most people, when they're separating too, like most of the situations that I've come across, nobody want, I mean, um, paraphrase here, uh, just make a general assumption, right? Most people don't want to destroy their ex's life, right? Maybe they do. I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe I should be a family law lawyer and I'll realize that maybe they all do. But, uh, but most of the clients that I've worked with, they're amicable. They want their ex to be able to move on. Everybody wants to be, they want to work together to get this done and they want to be able to do it as adults and, and move forward and know that, uh, you know, that, that everybody can afford to, to carry on in life, right? Nobody wants to destroy their, their ex's life, right? And, uh, you know, you, a lot of, you've got kids together, you know, they're a parent, whatever, right? So, um, there can be a lot of emotions that go through at that time period. Um, but I don't think that, uh, again, maybe I'm super naive, but from the, from the people that I've worked with, general malice is not one of them. So it's not like you're intentionally trying to, you know, hurt your ex's opportunities or chances at moving forward. Um, but it's just a matter of terminology, right. Or the way that something is structured to be, to make sure that it's what's beneficial for everybody. Right. Yeah. I think generally if they're entering into a separation agreement is because they at least realize that that's the best way to handle the situation economically for both of them, for themselves, they at least recognize that. 
And so, um, in order to get it done, there has to be some give and take and, and there has to be some kind of, you have to agree on things. So it's just a matter of you, you're, you have, you need the, all the information in order to make a good agreement. If you don't, if you're missing information, then you can end up with something that that's not fair. It doesn't work. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, hundred percent. And you know what? And the guy, and he has to sell now cause he's got to get her name off of it. And what's his likelihood of getting approved for another mortgage? He can, can't refinance this one. He's probably not getting approved for other financing to buy something. He's going to be going into renting, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, he's living in a trailer in the oil patch. He's fine. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then at his girlfriend's place when he's out of the oil patch, but most of the time he's in the oil patch. Uh, so he's, my client's okay. I'm not worried about it. He's going to be fine. Um, but you're right. It, it, other people could, it could be a lot worse. That's what I'm saying. Like for this, in this circumstance, this hiccup is not an, is not a big issue, but it could very easily tweak a few of those, um, facts and it could be a real nightmare of a scenario. I'm going to bring up, um, slight, well, on a, on the nightmare scenario front, I'm going to bring up a situation or a scenario and something, this is sort of changing tone a little bit here. Um, but along the same line. So one of the things to note in Alberta is with dower rights in Alberta, even if you accumulate or you purchase a property after a separation agreement has been signed, if dower rights were not signed off during that separation time period, you cannot sell or refinance that property until you're legally divorced without permission from your ex. So even if you purchase the property after the separation agreement has been signed, if you try to sell that property a year later or change the financing on it, you still need your ex's permission if you didn't have dower rights signed off in the separation agreement. And this might not come up a lot of times for people who have owned properties previous, because typically if you've owned property previously, dower rights are addressed when you're going through that separation stage, right? Um, but, I, you know, I had a situation, I had a client that was, it was a, an abusive situation. They were leaving an ex with a court-ordered separation agreement. Um you know, this was a situation where there was, it was a bit of an emergency situation to get them into something that they could move into. Money was being, you know, kind of held in parents' accounts and things to sort of help the, you know, a strategic exit, shall we say. And, um, and I mean, and I screwed up, like I didn't know this and the lawyer didn't advise her of this. And she, we bought a property we financed this property. We did one year private term financing to get her out of her situation and get her into a house um, and move on with her life. They didn't previously own. Dower rights were not addressed in their court ordered separation. And a year later comes up and, and this is during COVID. So a year later comes up and what's the status of her court ordered divorce? not in the queue. Like, you know, courts were like, I mean, what are they processing? They're working on you know, 2019 at this point, right? Uh, I don't know, maybe they're not. <laughs> no, they're, 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 they're much, much, much better now, but there was a time in COVID where it was crazy. Like um, it would take, it could take up to three months to get the divorce, which to me, that's crazy. Well, this is at worst. We're, I mean, we're in 2023 and this court order divorce is still not finalized. Well, that, um, that's, be, yeah, there's some other, that's not because it's been submitted for filing and it has been filed. It's because there's some other issues there, but your point is still the same and, and, and really important. And that is the Dower Act needs to be dealt with and it doesn't happen that often. Usually if you have a separation agreement, it's kind of a non-issue because part of the separation agreement is usually the one person taking care of the divorce and the divorce happens relatively quickly. And then dower is not an issue anymore. 
But if you're in the situation where you don't have a separation agreement and, and or um, the divorce doesn't happen soon after the separation agreement, which can happen as well, and you don't get a dower release, then you're you're in trouble. And here's the thing: if if you lie, so here, whenever you sell a property in Alberta and there's only one person on title, land titles will not register it without something satisfying the Dower Act. And and there's three ways that can happen. Um, one is you've never lived on that property. That property's never been the homestead of the couple. Uh, two, um, the you're not married. Or three the spouse has provided a release. So one of those three things has to happen. There might be others like there might be another one, but those, those three for sure will satisfy the Dower Act. And some piece of paper satisfying the Dower Act has to go in to land titles if only one person is on the title and they're selling. And so she wasn't able to say, I'm not married. And uh, she may have been able to say it wasn't our homestead, but um, I don't know. Apparently not because this is an issue you ran into anyways. So what happens if they just kind of lie because, you know, really they're basically divorced. If that were to happen, then the damages are very specific. And it's like, there's no, um, there's no fudging it with the court. It's, it's cut and dry in the Dower Act. So if you break, if you disobey the Dower Act and you lie and you get something, there's a disposition of land is what they call it. And the, the, the person with the Dower rights didn't sign off on it. Then the amount of damages is equivalent to half the consideration for the disposition made by the married person. If the consideration is of a value substantially equivalent to that of the property transferred or half the value of the property at the date of the disposition, whichever is the larger sum. So um, now I'm not an expert on this, but the way I'm reading that, it says to me that if you, if you uh, sell a house for $300,000, it, it doesn't care about what the mortgage is. It's you then owe the other person $150,000. Now I could be wrong. And maybe it's, maybe it's the value and the mortgage is taken out of that, but I, um, I don't think that's what it says. So I'm not giving a little opinion, legal opinion about the Dow Act, but what I'm, the point I'm trying to give is um, you can be in a lot of hurt. And yeah. And uh, yeah. And, and so this is something that, um, like I say, I mean, we found this out a year later trying to move her out of her private financing into a bank mortgage and couldn't because we can't refinance or sell that property without her ex's permission. And of course, getting her ex's permission means he knows her address. And that's something that we, you know, that was avoided in this situation, right? What happened? I'm on edge. Uh, there's still, she's, and, and it gets worse, right? She's in private financing on this property. And so they're um, done after that year, right? They want their money out. Well, I mean, they've renewed her. Okay. We're at the second renewal. Um, but what were the interest rates like two years ago? And what are the interest rates yeah. at private financing like today, right? Yeah. So this is someone whose mortgage payment has gone up about $400 a month for a single mom with, you know, three kids that like, is that, a, you know, this isn't the best situation, especially when our plan in the first place was it's a one-year thing. It's a stopgap. We'll get it moved after we're, you know, we need, we just need the time. We need the one year, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So, um, so my comment to this would be, you know, just in tying back to our previous chat on this is just like, even when you're talking about that separation agreement phase, 
and you're talking about the plans and moving forward and buying property and being, you know, you can purchase a property with that separation agreement, but you have to know um, that you better be on amicable terms if you're doing that. And everybody needs to know what the plan is, because if you do want to change your financing or sell and your divorce is not finalized yet, your ex better be willing to come and sign. Right. And I think a lot of people look, I mean, I get a lot of phone calls from people who want to purchase a property to run away to, you know, they want to purchase something that they can leave their partner and move into that property. And that, and, you know, earlier point, renting's not so bad. Renting is not so bad when you might have to pay your ex out of your property that you've purchased to run away from them to, right? And um, yeah. So so usually if there's a separation agreement, you're going to be fine um, because first of all, the lawyer will know. And if they don't know, well, at least if you're listening to this, you know, and so you can tell them, but the lawyer will know and they will execute. They will usually get a, a dower release executed at the same time. But um, if they don't, for whatever reason, um, usually there's clauses in there that say, like, in order to give effect to this agreement, uh, you guys have to sign whatever you have to sign. But it's a good thing to be aware of. And um, the bigger issue is if you don't have a separation agreement, um, then you could wind up in hot water like this person did without even realizing you're getting into hot water. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, I actually had, um, so after learning that by making that massive mistake and not ruining this person's life, she's, her life is not ruined. By so, Jill, hold on, Jill. You didn't make the mistake. Her lawyer did, and she should actually sue the lawyer. That's not a popular thing for lawyers to say about other, but like we have. I might give her your number because we've talked about that. Well, I'm not going to, like, I don't do that kind of law, but she should sue yeah. him because we have liability insurance for that very reason, because lawyers make mistakes. And well, we, t- and we did, we talked about that and said like, where in writing did he, did they advise you that this was the case? And, and they said, well, we told you. And if I was a lawyer and I had somebody buying a property after in this intermediary time period, I'd probably be making them sign a piece of paper that says they know that because I feel like that's a big deal, right? And, um, but it's interesting because you were saying like most separation agreements will address this. I had this come up with another client. So a separation agreement, they had never owned property previously. They had, you know, a lawyer drafted separation agreement. Um, she moved into a property that she was renting from, you know, their landlord. And then she wanted to purchase the property off of her landlord. She, because she had moved into that property after separation and before divorce, it was considered, you know, they have to check that box. Yes. She's lived in that property. They did not have dower rights, you know, uh, um, addressed in the separation agreement because they had never owned property before. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, you know, the week of closing, everybody's panic. You know, that she's got to find her ex, right? Like track him down. She hasn't talked to him in two years. You know, that kind of stuff, right? She's got to find her ex. He's got to come and sign a piece of paper with a lawyer so that she can buy this house, right? Um, so yeah. So it, it's, again, well, I mean, just tying this all back. There's a lot of situations that can come up. Um, when you're dealing with you know, divorce, separation, whatever, that can guide your decisions. And you probably want to talk to your, uh, you know, lawyer, accountant, broker, make sure that what your plan is all makes sense when you're going through that. Because yeah. just because you think you're going to go buy a house the week after your separation agreement is signed, I don't know if your ex doesn't sign is crazy. If, it, if they've dragged out your separation agreement for six months because they're fighting over the air miles points 
uh, like, are they the kind that's going to sign the dower rights for you? And you want to yeah. get divorced, to? get divorced. Yeah. If, you, if you're going to buy a house, get the divorce. You better have that divorce in process. Yeah. Cause you, you're, you're right, Jill. It's not going to, you can't even sign a dower release for property that's not purchased yet. You can't. So if you haven't bought a property yet, when the separation agreement's happening, there's no dower release to be, they can't sign the dower release at the time they're doing a separation agreement because it has to be specifically for that title. Oh, right. Like it's not just in general. Yeah. It's not yeah. just a general. Yeah. I don't think land titles would accept like a general dower release. I think it has to be named the, the dower release form names the, the specific parcel. So um, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point that people need to know. Don't, uh, don't just buy a house if you're separated, not divorced. Um, or beware if you do that, this can be an issue. We had one recently that, um, we refused to work on where a client had contacted us because they had written on a pre-con, uh, the pre-construction property, put their deposit down, $40,000 deposit down. And then it came time to qualify. And, you know, we're trying to qualify them to close on this, you know, condo a year later kind of thing. And, uh, and during you know, our discovery of documentation and conversation, it came out that the reason they bought the property was because their accountant had told them to hide money by putting a deposit on a pre-con purchase and so that they could hide their money from their separation. And we just refused to work on it, right? Like we're, we're not in the business of helping you hide money from your ex while you're going through a divorce, right? Um, but, uh, and it, you know, in a situation where a guy you know, did not qualify for this property. Uh, you know, they just, and it was like, well, I'm glad you threw $40,000 in a deposit to a builder that you're not going to get back because you can't qualify to close on this, on this purchase. Cause your divorce isn't separated or your separation isn't complete. Um, and the bank won't finance without a completed separation agreement. Um, like, I hope that was better use of the money than giving 20 of it to your ex and, you know, right, and keeping right, 20. Right. 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 Crazy. Yeah. And even uh, in that situation, you could have bought it and you probably couldn't have gotten rid you like they would have found out about it anyway. So yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. That seems like you're not going to circumvent the law or the rules when it comes to, uh, you know, to divorce, to financing when going through or after divorce. Right. So, um, lender, you're not going to circumvent lender rules. You're not going to circumvent the government regulations around purchasing and the documentation that's required or, you know, the law. So I think, you know, keep, keep that in mind when, when going through that, everybody listening to this podcast is all on the up and up and good anyway. Right. That's right. Well, we encourage them to be, yeah. <laughs> um, Kim, any last questions? No, I think it's really important to listen to what Jill had to say because we've heard it from lawyers, we've heard it from accountants, we've heard it from almost every single guest who's been on our program. Do not hide money. Do not attempt to, um, you know, be sneaky with the courts because uh, either the you know the banks will come down on you, a judge will come down on you, somebody's going to figure it out, and it's not going to work in your favor. So take the easy route, do the right thing, disclose your financials, talk to professionals uh, everywhere. Uh, divorce really is a collaborative opportunity for people to talk to a whole pile of professionals who have experience. I think it's really important that professionals have experience um, because, like to your point, Jill, uh, that that was a great learning opportunity for you. And you're probably so grateful that that 
came across because uh, despite it being a hiccup uh, in one spot, it's probably going to help out a lot of other people down the road. And it wouldn't have come up had you on our podcast, probably had you not uh, had gone through this. So we, we certainly I know the GoFundMe. Uh, I'm going to open a GoFundMe <laughs> for the podcast listeners so we can pay off this girl's mortgage because uh, <laughs> that's how guilty I feel. Right. But yeah, we've all been there. We've all <laughs> been young and, or, you know, come across just something that you we just would have had no way of knowing and no you're not the lawyer you're fine no i know and i feel guilty anyway no their lawyers should feel guilty a lawyer needs to donate to the gofundme right yeah you're you're fine you're fine you just, you know, <laughs> she she had a right to get proper legal advice as part of that realistic transaction so but you know I, and i think it just highlights at the end of the day though that um you know like you said ask all the professionals because there's a lot behind the scenes. You know, most people, when we think about divorce, you're, you're, when you think about leaving your spouse, you're thinking about who's getting the good couch, who's getting the crappy basement couch. Um, you know, am I going to keep the bet? Who's taking the pets? Right. And, and, and where am I going to live? You're not thinking about, you know, the, the weird letter of the law that's going to have, you know, behind the scenes that might throw a massive wrench into your plants, right? Divorce is an emotional situation, but, you know, finance and the legal side of things, it's not an emotional side, you know, that's not an emotional situation. There are hard, fast rules when it comes to this side. So just because what you want to do fits your emotional needs doesn't mean uh, that it's the right thing to do, right? You got to analyze that with with your brain, not your heart. Yeah. Amen. Well done, Jill. Well done. Well, thanks for having me uh, on. Um, like I said, I could talk. We could just keep talking if you want. But um, all the listeners, everybody's driven to Banff by now, listening to the podcast in the car, right? So they're ready. They're ready to go skiing or hiking or whatever they're yeah. doing. Yeah. I was there for eight years. It's a great place. Uh, you know, enjoy the weekend, right? <laughs> and one last thing, Jill. So you're with the mortgage architects, but you've got the mortgage nerd behind you. Is there a significance to the mortgage nerd? I, uh, well, I, so I actually, um, I know I I mentioned earlier, I have a team of agents. Um, I, I actually teach mortgage brokering to new brokers across the country. So I have a underwriter training course, um, teaching all of this kind of stuff, uh, to age, you know, new agents and stuff like that, um, across the course. So the course is called the mortgage nerd. Um, but you know, that's just, uh, that's me. It's my sort of nickname, I guess would be, uh, I'm pretty nerdy about this kind of stuff. So yeah. And top of doing business here, um, I'm licensed in Alberta, NBC. I do have a team of agents across the country. And then I, I do teach, um, you know, exactly how to do this job across, you know, to agents across the country as well. So well, that's great. For those listeners who aren't watching this, Jill has a like a a sign in her background that says the mortgage nerd. It looks great. It's stylish. There's glasses on it. You'll just have to look look it up on YouTube to see. All right, Joel, thanks again so much for coming. I'm sorry Heather couldn't make it. She sends her regrets, but um, she also promised to take you out for lunch. So Oh, I can't. Yeah. I can't wait. We connected pretty well the other day when we were, um, yeah. So we've been, we've been talking about that, but yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, I, you know, anytime you want me to come back and talk about anything nerdy, like I'm in, I'm game. So great. All right. Well, thanks so much.
Thanks, Jill. It was great to see you again. It's been a while, but uh, how fun is this to connect on uh, on the podcast? And uh, we we will take you up on that offer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, you and I we should go for lunch too. We should lunch. We should all lunch. We well, should, yeah. That's, I mean, that's what we do. We don't work. We just lunch. That's right. <laughs> I said the other day. You can edit this part out. I said the other day in a um, I don't know a bio or so. Somebody was asking me for like a bio about myself, and I. I, I work from home as a home office. And, uh, and I said, I consider getting coffee to be like going out. Like I, like, you know, when we were younger and we talked about going out and it's like a big ordeal or whatever. Right. And, uh, yeah. So even for the, I, I am the person that's at my desk in my office from eight in the morning till evidently 1am. Uh, like I, I'm not the person that's like running out. So, you know, Angela's always trying to get me to go to the networking events and stuff like that. And I'm like, I mean, I have to leave my house. Like I have to go somewhere. I have to, you know, I'd much prefer to just be here in front of my computer, working on mortgages, getting them done. Then, you know, like the, like, I'm just not as good at the getting out there, meeting, shaking hands, going for lunches kind of person. Right. But you do what you like to do. And I know I got to do better at it. No, no, you don't have to network. I'm, I think you just do what works for you and, and live the life that you want to live, period. <laughs> All right, well, thanks, everyone. That was another episode of Access to Justice. We'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Any information in this video is general information only and is not, nor is it intended to be, legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Mallorick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Mallorick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Mallorick, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, RJFE, a subsidiary of Raymond James Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. When providing life insurance products, financial advisors are acting as insurance representatives of RJFE. Darkness of the dales, decline because of he who turned water.